Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweibach. Thanks for joining me. Why, when, where, what should I be? Is all I'm asking. For my guest today is Rabbi Sari Laufer, my colleague and friend. I talked to her about her journey to the rabbinate, her childhood in New York City. Is it true that New York Jews like to use their hands to talk, and if so, why? We also talk about the recent Supreme Court decision that is so at odds with our Jewish teachings around reproductive freedoms. Stay tuned and be inspired. Let me ask you that. So you are a New York City... I am a, I am a New Yorker. New York City person. Um, and people say that New Yorkers talk with their hands. To what extent do you believe that to be true? I have never noticed that I talk with my hands. I have been told that that is something that I do. Right, but do you think it is... Yes, I have even heard people mention to you with love and admiration and great respect that they've noticed that about you. But do you think it's true, having been on both coasts and studying in the Midwest, I believe you might have gone to Northwestern. I did, go Cats. So, so you spent some time in Chicago. You got to be with the Midwesterners. You've been on the, I'm not going to do that best coast and west coast and all that, because I'm squarely from the center of the you country. Yeah, it's like, it's all good. But you think people talk more with their hands in New York? I do, and here's my newest theory on it. Yeah. It's very loud in New York City, and part of me wonders if it is a way of a nonverbal communication to get your point across when cars or cabs or fire trucks or ambulances are, you know, whizzing by. That makes sense. Um, One of my favorite things in the five years that I lived in Israel was watching the way people would use their hands there. It's very different. They use their hands in a very expressive fashion, but it's different than the way you see it in New York. First of all, Israelis will will stand very close to one another when they speak, and uh, and you listener, you can't see what I'm doing, but I'm I'm holding all five fingers together, and they'll do a lot of that, a lot of that, and sometimes turning the hand over. It's a, it's a different kind of hand usage, and then in the Midwest, we we just keep our hands squarely at the sides of our bodies. <laughs> <laughs> we don't yeah. move too much. Move. No, I just finished the book True Biz, um, which is all about the deaf community um, and really interesting about, you know, huh. nonverbal communication and different sign languages and, and the way that hand, body mm. is all used. When Jacqueline and I lived in New York together, when I was at HUC and she was studying at Teachers College, we went to services almost every Friday night at B'nai Jeshurun. And they always had someone signing the service. And I would, my favorite place to sit was like literally right, not right in front of her, because there were people who had to sit there, but you know, in such a way that I could watch her sign. And I just found it to be, it was like ballet. It was just so beautiful. And, and then, and she knew, I, I got a chance to spend time talking to her a little bit, and she really knew Hebrew, and so she wasn't just signing from the prayer book, she was really right. signing from the, the, the we, Hebrew, it was pretty at, amazing. At, when I was at Road of Sholem, we committed for a lot of different reasons to having a sign interpreter once a month, um, and I don't remember all the specifics, but I believe there are people particularly trained in liturgical sign, right, that it's not, it's sort of a... It's not a separate language, but right, it's not just 
reading it from the prayer book and translating it. We we had a fascinating, we, we all learned how to sign Shema and had this really interesting conversation with the signer. And it's actually something that's signed differently in some places, but because the very command around listening or hearing is really complicated for the deaf community. And so how do you sign something? Wow. Yeah. Um, it's like pay attention. That's what, yeah. Yeah. That is the sign that. And it's interesting in, in Hebrew, re'e, which um, you know can mean see, but it, but it means pay attention. Look here, look here. You know, I got to tell you something. Shema, you know, pay attention, listen up, um, which is how I do that. So that was an interesting place to go to. Um, so Rabbi Sari, uh, tell us a little bit about your Jewish journey. You're an only child, only child, um, and grew up in Manhattan. What was what was little Sari Laufer's Jewish beginnings? There, I, when I look back, I think I really think part of why I love what I do is I see my family reflected in so many families that we work with. Um, I would say I was raised in a very warm and connected Jewish home, but not necessarily an observant Jewish home. Um, I certainly knew I was Jewish. I also grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, so I think I thought most people were Jewish. Everybody is Jewish. Except we, our next-door neighbors, with whom I was very, very close, they had a daughter two years older than me, and we basically, you know, it, it was apartments next door, so we didn't have to go outside, so we could just go to one another's apartment, and I spent a lot of time, and her father... Uh, was Chilean, and their family was quite observant Catholic family. And my mom likes to tell the story that at some point when I was about five years old, I came home and was like, Mommy, why don't we love Jesus? And my mom was like, and to religious school we go. Like, you know, suddenly that sense of like, oh, you know, we do all the holidays. Karen wasn't feeling it, and then all of a sudden she was was really feeling it. Um, You know, and so I I grew up. And had she, had your mom grown up? All, she's also a New Yorker. She, they, my whole family is New York. My parents both grew up on Long Island, and 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 they would say, well, my mom says she grew up conservadox. I used to tease her. I'm like, oh, so you guys parked a couple blocks away to walk, um, and my dad grew up really truly in a classical reform synagogue. You know, out on Long Island. Out on Long Island, um, and so. And by the way, listener, we say on Long Island. Correct. Just so everybody or on knows, the island or, or on the, the island, depending. The island, yes, but you're on it. You are on it. Right. Uh, so they grew up on Long Island, and, and you know, I think when they... But by the way, you were recently in Hawaii, not yes. to, you know, give away I was. your whereabouts, but I, I'm sure you, like, tweeted about it at some point or something. People knew. But no one would say, I was on Maui. I think people do say I was, say on, I was Maui. on Maui. I was on Maui? Huh. I think you'd say I was in Maui. Where, where did you go? We were in Maui for a week. But no I one, have heard people ask... But you would never say, I was in Long Island for a week. Correct. You would you, not. You would not say but that. But you could say I was in Syosset for a week. In Syosset. I once spent a month in Syosset for I'm a week. I'm sure you did. Hey, yeah. thank you so much. All right. That was just an aside. About Why am I doing this? The important thing is the story about Karen Marty making it from Long, Long Island, Island where, yeah. uh, so she was conservadox. And he was, he was reform. But like classical reform, right. not. UPB, oh yeah, English, UPB, no tally no tote, tally yeah. tote, no, very much so. So, would you say that your more of your Yiddish kite comes from your mom's side, or was it something that came on your own journey? Because you are a talus wearing, yarmulke wearing, tefillin laying, <laughs> yeah. you know, Talmud studying, 
which and and listener, not every single reform rabbi in the country would you be able to say that about? You are one who really embraces those aspects of tradition that wouldn't have been part of Marty, your your dad, right. of blessed memories. Right, experience. or my mom's because she grew up a woman. Right. In, you you mean they didn't lay tefillin at they the did not. Orthodox synagogue? You know, nor did she. On? Nor did she chant Torah or you know the, any of that. No, I mean, I think a lot of that came for me later as I was exposed to it. Um, you know, I that's an I'm now I'm thinking, I'm like, did I wear a tallit at my bat mitzvah? I'm not sure that I did. My mom will correct me. She'll be like, what yes, was, you did. She'll send me a picture. What was your parsha? Uh, parsha. It's coming up. Chukat. Okay. Or, so you were also yeah. a summer. I was, yeah. Because I'm uh, shlach lecha. Why? Well, uh, I was born in October. Yes. That's why you're looking so puzzled. That's why, yes. And Reader, you cannot see. Um, we we decided to wait until June for family convenience because okay. we had cousins and other people who were going to be coming back. And so we did it in June. But as it turns out, coincidence, I think, yes. But maybe Beshert, it was the exact same Shabbat that Jacqueline was called not to Torah because she went to a conservative synagogue but. on Long Island where young girls did not, not, young women did not read from Torah, but they chanted Haftorah. So, yeah. But it was, it was Parashat Shalach well, That's very sweet. Yeah, and no, the Haftorah, of course, is Joshua. Right. So then, and because she's a year younger than I am, we met the same thing. Okay, so you're Chukat. I'm Chukat. And you're not sure if you wore the talis, I'm but not. you could probably find the pictures. I could probably find the pictures. Oh, you posted a picture. I did. I don't think I was wearing a talit. Yeah, I was definitely were... wearing a sharp suit, though. You, I saw <laughs> the sign, power the suit sign outside. The sign. Was that yeah. Shari Tefillah? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, listener, uh, Upper East Side, Shari Tefillah congregation. Um, yeah, you know, I think about that a lot in terms of sort of authenticity for people who didn't grow up with certain practices, like how does that practice become rooted in you? Because so many things, sometimes I used to wish when I was like in rabbinical school, I wished partly just because it would have been nice to have that knowledge. You know, I Mm -hmm. thought wouldn't have been nice to have grown up at a Jewish day school so that, you know, when I went to HUC for the first day, no one would have to show me how to read Rashi because I already knew how to read Rashi. And so I kind of longed for that. And I also sort of longed for those memories. Wouldn't it have been great to be in shul and, you know, and Zadie reaches into his pocket and pulls out, you know, a a little candy, you know, and it was just like kind of imagining this world that didn't exist for me. And it's interesting. I actually think that when I got to rabbinic school and I, I actually sort of remember both of those, I both felt, you know, I, I, through the Wexner Foundation and others really was in this pluralistic, you know, would look at particularly the men in my fellowship who, you know, had just years of yeshiva learning and just being like, I'm, unless I truly dedicate myself only to Talmud study, right, I just will never know the breadth of text that that they, they were just handed. And also, I didn't grow up going to Jewish camp and in the Jewish camping movement. And so I also was like, whoa, I don't have that either. Um, so I remember sort of being in rabbinic school and, you know, I, I didn't have either of those backgrounds. Right. Well, um, we just had a song session we for did. Camp Wise and you, you know all those songs now. I do. I You're rocking them. out. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I'm, I am, for anyone, teenagers listening, I'm a youth group dropout. I, uh, you didn't get kicked out. I did Let's not get clear. kicked out. No, no, no. Did not dropped get kicked out. out. I okay. dropped out because uh, someone I did not like very much. One, the youth group election, 
And I was like, I'm out. Which Later. is not not a good, I, you know, I, I actually have. But you grew from that. I did. And you I learned. Did. We learned resilience. Um, so at what point in this journey, so Karen hears you come ask the question <laughs> about baby Jesus and why, why, <laughs> why is that I not part that? of our life? And she says, get thee to a Hebrew school. Yep. And she takes you to uh, Sharitz Fila because you're on the Upper mm-hmm. East Side. It's right there. Um, why not a conservative place? Was that a... a they had uh, found a compromise. That compromise was sort of an agreement. Marty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you didn't do the camp thing, but you did youth group thing for a little bit. For a little bit. Uh, were you already, when you were at Northwestern, were you already thinking about rabbinical school? I really wasn't. So I went to... My grandmother took me to Israel after I became bat mitzvah. So I became bat mitzvah in June. She took me that Is June... Your mom's My mom's mom, mom Grandma yeah. Raz. Blessed memory. She took me to Israel, and I really did. I fell in love with Israel. I, you know, you know how it goes. I, I loved everything about it. I loved hearing the Hebrew. I loved that signs were in Hebrew. The hands, the way they used the exactly. Hands. I was like, I'm home. These are my people. Um, I loved asking for glida. You know that all of a sudden. Um, and, and so did that you know really, some Hebrew already? Ve- I mean, I knew what I'd learned in religious right. school and, and certainly in... Glida will get you very right, far, like, right? You know, certainly in religious school in those days, you did not really learn spoken Hebrew. Right. Um, so, you know, right. I could be like, Ani rotsa glida, which means I want ice cream, was about the extent of my... Hey. But it got me what I needed, you know? That'll get you, Yeah. So uh, you had that trip. And then I went back and again at 16. this was in 16. your 14, yeah, 13, 14 Yeah, I was 12. Ago. And then right. I went back oh. on a teen tour back to Israel for six weeks. Right. Like a nifty um, thing? I mean, it like... wasn't nifty, but, right. you know, sort of, you know, like East Coasters, you know, I'm sure. Ja- Habonim Tour, it was No, it was, we were not that oh. Zionist. So, right. You know, I picked, if I'm honest, I picked the one I picked, you know, you got 8,000. So in, when you grow up on the East Coast, there's sort of a certain... You go to camp, you go to sleepaway camp for seven weeks. Seven weeks. It was eight, actually, when I was growing up. They've scaled it back, right. but it was eight weeks. All and the then, camps have Native American names. Yep, mine did not, so I'm thankful for that. filled with Jews, Jews yeah. but they're not really Jewish. Right, we call them Jewish. Than, but you would do, like, Friday night. You'd have challah. Yep. Yeah. roast chicken, challah, and we'd sing right. Adon alum. Hey. Why not? There, there are worse yep. ways to celebrate yep. the Shabbos. What was your camp? Camp Wayne. Camp, of course, yeah. Camp Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> Why the would it not be called that? <laughs> Camp Vane? You know. Yeah. So, um, okay, so on the East Coast, kids go to camp. eight weeks of camp. And then when you're in, you know, 10th grade, 11th grade, you sort of take a break from camp and many go, I don't know if this is still true, but. They used to do teen trips. Right. Go so to say, like, you go on teen right. tours either. Right. You can go west. out west, which I did one summer, and you would go to Israel. And so I went to Israel. Yeah, and so I picked- you're at Yellowstone going to see Old Faithful, <laughs> and you hear this group of 20 young women from Long, Long Island, Island who are just oh having a chat. Yeah. 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 So you either did the tour west or you went back right. to Israel. So you did like one of those six week trips, mm-hmm, which right. I, for two summers, I was a tour guide for Nifty. And I have to say, some of the most wonderful, wonderful experiences of my life was doing that. And also amongst the most physically challenging yeah. and also stressful because we had, I was the, I was the responsible adult and I was 25 or six with 40, 16 year olds, just trying to make sure that everyone came home safe, um, 
not pregnant, not too pierced, maybe not, one extra piercing, not, not, not tattooed many, right? or pierced or all those things. And, uh, Listener, let me just tell you, like, you try it, because it is not <laughs> easy. There's every summer, there's going to be a kid who gets into the, you know, the kiddish wine at the kibbutz that you're staying at and overdoes it. A kid steals something from, you know, one of the souvenir stores. There's stuff happens. One yeah. kid, uh, they, in the, one kid got into the kiddish wine, and then his roommates shaved his head huh. while he was drunk. And uh, we discovered this in the morning, so we had to call that kid's parents to tell him that he had no hair. And then the other kid's <laughs> And he had also, you know, been, been drinking. And then we had to call the other kid's parents to say that they had shaved a kid's head uh, while he was unconscious. So I am not going to say the names of any of these folks. but They're all rabbis now. Right. I did listeners. run into one of them, actually, at a wedding that I did about five years ago. And he's like a fully grown, yeah, responsible, like human, yeah. grown up. And he gave me this look and I gave him a look like, yeah, yeah, we don't need to go into that. So the Israel experience had a lot to do lot. with your deciding to become a rabbi. Why didn't you instead decide to make Aliyah and live on a kibbutz, for example? I thought about it. Right. And I think... I think my parents were ready for it, but I I actually went to college really really thinking that I was going to work for the State Department. Like it was going I was going to solve the Middle East peace crisis. Like that's sort of where I thought I was going. Are you just off the record and I will I will edit this out. Are you CIA or Mossad? Mossad. Okay. I'm editing that out. All right, keep going, sorry. Um, I love languages, and so I really was like, yep, I'm going to become this fluent Hebrew speaker. I can look, you know, I can pull it off, right? I can look Mediterranean. So I'm now watching Tehran, and I'm like, that could have been me. It could have been you. It's not too late. I think it is too late. Um, If you wait 30 years, you could be the Glenn Close character. Exactly, exactly. Um, By the way, I don't want to do any spoilers, but we got to talk about the end of season two. Yeah, Some powerful stuff going on. Um, all right. So you were going to work for the State Department. Yeah, that's were what gonna, I thought. And did you want to learn Arabic too? Yep. Wanted you to learn Hebrew, wanted thing. to learn Arabic. Right. Um, that was sort of my plan. And I, and I got to college. And, and by the way, this is why I love doing these podcasts, because I've known you now for many years. Yeah. We work closely together. I talk to you multiple times a day, text you things like, have you written my Devar Torah <laughs> for tonight yet? And you're only half kidding. Um, and I didn't know any of this. Yeah. Yeah, really. Unbelievable. I still cut. Now, actually, I really want to learn Farsi. That's my new obsession. Yeah. Um, there's not a Duolingo for it, in case you were wondering. Really? I have looked. There's not Duolingo, Babbel. None of them have Farsi. Problem, I've tried a couple of words in Google Translate, but it gives it to you in uh, the Farsi characters. Right. And so, so then I'm like, help. I can't read yeah. this. I need it in transliteration. Yeah. Um, so, but did you learn? You never learned Arabic. I never learned Arabic. So what happened? I mean, I, I got to Northwestern. Go Cats. I'm contractually obligated every time to say, you say that, that every time. You're going to say Go Cats. Um, because Northwestern is best known for its outstanding <laughs> athletics department. I mean, you know, Big Ten. Yay. Yeah, no, they're great. Um, but when I got there, it it really was my first experience of really understanding Judaism as a minority and, and being Jewish as a mm. minority. Um, so interesting. Even though I'm, I'm sure the same was true for you in Omaha, you know. Surrounded. No, I always had understood. Right. It no, that I way. know. Right, right. But you yeah. know, even but you never though, had that makes sense. Right. Even though, look, you know, not all of my friends growing up were Jewish. The school, you know, I went to public school. I didn't go to J school. I went to public school. So, but, but there were no shortage of Jews. There were no shortage of Jews, yeah. and the the you know, it's the um, 
is it Lenny Bruce, right? Is he the one who's like, you know, if you're from New York, you're Jewish. If you're from Minnesota, you're not. Like the, um, sorry, Minnesotans, I love, I love a lot of Minnesotan Jews. They're some we of my so, favorite people. I have people. so many listeners from Minnesota. I'm going to be getting lots of yeah. mail about that. Um, but, you know, that was the, over, that's the overriding culture in New York City, right? That every, things are closed for Yom Kippur. Things are closed on Rosh Hashanah. That people know when it's Passover. That all of those things are so baked in. And then I got to Northwestern, which by the way, has a, that very sizable right. Jewish population. But, but tonally, it's not. Tonally, right. it is not Jewish. Yeah. And so... Well, in that sense, you know, West L.A. and the Valley are much closer to New York. Right, absolutely. Because, you know, public radio and all the stores, like, everybody knows. Everyone knows. It's Rosh Hashanah. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that led me sort of socially and spiritually, I don't know if I would have said that at 18, but looking back to really seek out Jewish community in a way that I never had. Um, Mm. That, you know, that Hillel for the High Holy Days was both, where else was I going to be? Because that's how I had grown up, right? You go to synagogue, but that was also, I mean, we use this language differently now, but it was a safe, right? It was like, oh, hey, here are people who speak my language on, on, Right. multiple levels. Uh, I did take introductory Hebrew as my plan and, and ended up, those are still some of my closest friends from college are people who were in that cohort. Hmm. Um, and I, the, the joke that I tell is I, Northwestern's a quarter school and there was one quarter where for whatever reason I was taking an extra class. I wanted to get credits. I actually don't remember why I did it. And so I needed an easier And I had to take my math requirement, which I was not excited about. So I knew that I needed to have something to balance that out. And so a friend and I took intro to Judaism together. And sure enough, first half of the course coasted, right? The midterm was, you know, what is Yom Kippur? What is Passover? And I was like, this is great. You know, I'll I'll get my A or whatever. I found my gut. Exactly. I was like, this is perfect. And then the second half was all the stuff was theology and theodicy and philosophy that I had never really encountered and you know I think deep at heart I'm probably an academic and so I fell in love with the academic side. Had you done confirmation did they have that at, at uh, They did. Sure. They do. did. Um but it wasn't that cuz for some kids the confirmation class classically I think fewer and fewer synagogues including this one do that mainly because kids are so overloaded today and, and so much has changed about what the high school experience is. But for a lot of people, myself included, confirmation was the time when the rabbi would do theology with us and ask those tough questions. And we used to do hot topics. You know, I'm sure which, we did. You know, which was like yeah. abortion right. and euthanasia and those Funny. kinds of things. Look at that. Yeah. And, we've uh, come so far. We've come so far. Um, but I like those so that by the time I got to college... I was already, you know, thinking about modern Jewish thought and, you know, that kind of stuff. So you really had that in the second semester of this class. It's so interesting, just those serendipitous kind of moments in life where, you know, you were looking for, not that you're not a hardworking student, you are. I was, I was taking extra class. You were like, you know what, you know, make it easy on myself. And then lo and behold, you have this experience that ends up being, and as soon as you encountered Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy was did you know like ooh something exciting's happening here i like this stuff yes yes and i don't think i knew how to name it at the time so i majored in american studies which at northwestern is a very very small inter interdisciplinary major 
um, and really focus on American religion. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in sociology. I'm interested in the culture, actually probably more than the philosophy or the, the thought piece of it. Um, I, I realized then that I was really interested in sort of the lived experience of religion in America. And, you know, this I've, I've said to people over the years, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Marla Swartz, now Marla Morgan, uh, who had been on the nifty board, uh, was one of my closest friends in college and she was the first person who said to me like have you ever thought about rabbinic school Um, all right we got to make sure she hears this i'll send it to her okay good marla thanks for listening and please um, share this with all your friends so and she said that just because she had an intuition that this was meaningful to you she'd grown up in nifty right so she had grown up really enmeshed in jewish life and jewish living and you know i think she saw that i was interested in it. I wrote my thesis, my undergraduate thesis on sort of women's life rituals, um, Simchat Bat or Brit Bat, um, which is, you know, now we would call a baby naming, but was still pretty new. Um, I mean, not new, ancient, but also very new. Um, and I think she saw all of that and, and her, you know, I, I had rabbis, but I didn't have real rabbinic role models for me. Um, at that point in my life. And I think she did. And so she looked and was like, well, this is something you could do. Because it was clear at that point I was probably not going to the State Department having. You spoke a little bit about this at our special service um, at the beginning of June when we celebrated and honored, was it just the beginning of this month? (laughs) Um, 50 years of women in the rabbinate since the ordination of Sally Priest. And um, who, who are some of those, but not everybody listening to this necessarily heard that, who are some of those female role models that in some ways enabled you to imagine yourself as, as a rabbi? Because like you said, with your mom, that wasn't something she had a analog for. It's such a good question. I real I I mean I will give first of all I'll give credit to Marla who even though she wasn't a rabbi I think opened that door for me. Again, looking back, um, I'll send this to her too. Rabbi Melinda Pankin had been our I want to say rabbinic intern, um, and again I wasn't. At, this was at Sherry Tefila. I wasn't actively involved, but. It wasn't a foreign idea that there could be a woman up there. What year are we talking about? Because I worked with Melinda when I song led. I was doing song leading for Crafty, mm-hmm. and I did a couple of conventions at Camp Eisner, where Melinda was when I was in college. So you were probably in. Probably well, nice. you were probably in junior high, mm-hmm. at the time. We're talking nineteen ninety. Yeah, that was just, I was like 92. Okay, so I just missed you. But that's when I first met Melinda, because yeah. she was, yeah, I think the intern at, uh, at Shari Tefila, and I got to do a conclave with her. But yeah, I mean, I think really most of my, if we're looking at female mentors, came as I grew into the rabbinate. Um, I look at Rabbi Elka Abrahamson, who's been one of my mentors for so, so long, um, Rabbi Dr. Devore Weisberg, um, um, I can think of uh, Rabbah Yaffa Epstein. Um, interestingly, it's sort of always been people who can really like teach text in a very profound way who have, who have opened things for me the most. And then my colleagues. Right. I, I mean, right. male and female. I, you know, I look at my colleagues doing amazing things in the world. So at some point in college, you actually made, kind of made that decision. Mm-hmm. Did it, did the, and then the State Department 
Um, sorry, State Department, you lose, we win. Um, that kind of disappeared, yeah. and you decided, I'm going to focus sort of, on know, this. It sort of landed. I, you know, I, I don't know that I ever would have come to it on my own. Right. I, I just don't know that it, it was in my you know, purview at all. Um, how did how did your parents re- react when you <laughs> shared that with you, them? You had met point? my father enough times. He was pretty surprised. Um, you know, he t- you know t- he spoke t- his mind too. Marty would say he was what, not shy. What he felt he that was, was my sense. Yeah, he was him. not shy. You know, and he would often say like, "Where did you come from?" Um, but but was always so so proud. Right. Um, and you know, nothing but supportive. But really, was like, "Where did this come from?" Well, when I finally got to know him a little bit, he was 100% excited about the decision that you had made to become a rabbi. Not 100% excited about your decision to move to Los Angeles. That was less and popular. And he yeah. um, blamed me yes. in part for that. And I just had to clarify, Marty, we're delighted <laughs> that uh, Sari wants to come this way. We would not force her to do anything against her will. I mean, Also, she is an adult. <laughs> you understand she's a grown woman. She can... <laughs> decide to live where she wants to live. Um, so you end up, and then did you go straight to HUC? Or I did worked you do for a... one year at the Religious Action Center um, in Washington, D.C., so doing social action and, and policy. David Saperstein was David there at Saperstein the time. David Saperstein was there at the time. The great Rabbi Ambassador. Yes. David Saperstein. Mm-hmm. Um, who the Honorable, I think. is an absolute hero of all yeah. of ours. I got to know David um, kind of one-on-one at, at one of the... I think it was a rack event, and then they did a 5K. And David loved to run this 5K, yes, and, and everybody would, anybody who wanted to would come and, and, and do that, that with him. Fun. And I ended up running with him for part of the time and got to know him a little bit. And then you know every encounter since then, he's just an extraordinary guy. So you yeah. did that for a year. So that's a little bit of your State Department. Then yeah, You kind exactly. of got the got State Department of, of the yeah. Reform Movement. Yeah, sure. And then you go to HUC, mm-hmm. and you ended up, as it turned out, you were there in one of the bloodiest, most yeah. painful, uh, violent years in uh, in Israel's history, really, certainly for civilians yeah. um, at the start of the Second Intifada. So tell us a little bit about that experience. I was visiting Israel during part of that time and I actually came to the college, mm-hmm. um, you know, with a bunch of colleagues yep. just for a day, but we were there for, you know, we were there for a week. Then we went back to our home communities. You guys were in that we for were months. Yeah. You know, I... I left, if I remember correctly, my plane took off the day. There was a bombing at the Dolphinarium in Tel Aviv, one of, a, a nightclub, and my plane my plane took off the next day. And I remember, I think, it was just at the onset of cell phones, so probably I You're had, playing for Israel. I played for Israel, Israel, going to Israel. And the Dolphinarium um, is still, you just say that word, and every it, Israeli it remembers exactly where they were yeah. when it happened. As it turned out, that that evening at this disco, there were many, many teenagers whose families had immigrated from the former Soviet Union. And if you go to the Dolphinarium, there's a little memorial mm-hmm. plaque. The Dolphinarium's gone, and they, they're developing some new thing there. But you see the plaque, and you see the names, and they're, and they're all these strong kind of Russian, Olga's and Maria's and Igor's. Um, 
and they're, and then the most horrific part is their age, age it's, right. you know, 15, yeah. 17, 16. It was just a horrendous, horrendous yeah. loss. So that was right, bef- that right was before you right took before off I from took New off York to, to come. Israel. And I'm sure your mom and dad are thinking, like, maybe this is not they, a good you know, idea. Yes, and, and the day I was leaving, and that's why I was trying to remember, did I have a cell phone? Like, was it in the cab on the way to JFK or right before I left that the woman who was supposed to be my roommate called and said, I'm not coming. Wow. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, and so off we went and yeah, I mean, it was basically the, my, I would say my class is actually an incredibly close knit, very bonded group. I think because we had, we didn't, I don't feel like we got to experience a lot outside of our bubble right. um, because of the fear and the anxiety. And also I think a lot of Israelis sort of turned inwards, right. um, but pretty much every Saturday night, something there happened. was something yeah um and you would i mean it was we still i mean joke at black you know we use dark humor uh gallows humor you know we would sort of joke we'd be like all right let's just wait till the sirens so we know where we can meet up right. this saturday night or you know uh your friends and mine rabbi adam allenberg and our other friends uh todd markley they always had like they had a standing uh falafel date on like Tuesdays or something and they'd sort of decide like well there was an attack there a couple weeks ago so it's probably right you played these like strange um and then you might have been in Israel when this happened so my apartment was directly above the bar moment yeah I was there right so that's and I actually was out of the country I was I'm a little teal to Istanbul um but came home came back to Jerusalem and I mean, literally, CNN was broadcasting from the balcony above mine, uh, and that. And this is, you know, for our listeners, this is right across the street from the prime minister's residence, which mm-hmm. was crazy. So imagine, you know, an, an, a terrorist attack like that happening, literally, right. uh, you know, a stone's throw from the White House. Um, just absolutely horrific. I remember when I visited. HUC after the, that bombing, mm-hmm. one of your classmates said in tears, you know, just said, um, you know, the city just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller because, right. okay, now you can't go to that neighborhood. You can't go to right. this neighborhood. And and uh, like I said, I was only there for, right. you know, for a small part of that. But just in the in the short time I was I was there, it was traumatic. Do you find yourself, you know, all these years later, are there ever moments where you're kind of back in that in a cold sweat almost? Um, Less now. When I first moved back to Los Angeles, actually, the police helicopters, of which there are many here in Los Angeles. They love the police helicopters in this town. They do. But that would make me Mm. hugely anxious. Yeah. Um, You know, I. But. And but one of the things that's interesting you talk about the Dolphinarium. So Moment has become like six different cafes since then. But right. there's also a plaque. Um, and every time I go to Jerusalem, I go. Um, and I just remember one. You know, there's a guard there because most cafes in right. Jerusalem still have guards. Um, and he was sort of looking at me, and I was looking at him, and he was trying to tell if I was suspicious, right? You know, because I'm standing right by this plaque, you know. And I had the comfort, you know, I explained. I just I lived over there during right. the and and the there was this, you know, it's very clear when I'm in Israel that I'm a tourist, right? My my accent gives it away, my everything. And in that moment, there was this sense of you're, you get it. Right. Um, and, and I think that's what I carry actually more than the, I mean, I think there probably is trauma. There's probably stuff to work through. But, but really, I think I carry this sense of like, I've been in it. Yeah. Um, that, so the Central Conference of American Rabbis, 
of which we are both members. Um, every seven years, the conference is in Israel. And yeah, the, this, this February is going to be another visit. And so I was there for that. Right. And, and it happened to fall right over the, that was the uh, Saturday night, the Motzei Shabbat right. of that bombing. And in part because the city had gotten smaller and many of our families, loved ones, spouses, significant others had said, you know, please don't go out. Please don't leave the hotel. Please don't do this. So basically, you know, we had all of these rabbis on this at this conference and we kind of weren't leaving the hotel other than we get on our own tour bus and go to a particular site that had security. We do the visit and we get back on our tour bus, but we weren't getting on public transportation. We weren't taking a cab anywhere. And Saturday night, we just kind of collectively decided, let's hang out. We were at the Inbal Hotel. Right, and you invited all the HUC students. And all the HUC students, and we were in the courtyard of the Inbal Hotel and there was, you know, bottles of wine and bottles of scotch and people were, um, you know, just talking and, and really delighting in each other's presence, you know, just having that comfort. And we heard the explosion because right. it's, it's really right just, a, you know, about a half a mile up the road. And it was just, uh, it was just awful. And I think for so many Zionists and lovers of Israel, there are moments like that. And, and I think people listening might remember, you know, I remember 73 and I was in Yom Kippur services and the rabbi got up, you know, there are these moments, even if you're not physically present there, but there are moments that, that you connect to. Um, and I, I hope that we can give each other all those positive moments too. And, and it's not just right. moment cafe right. and Sparrow and Dolphinarium, those kinds of things. Birthday, but, you know, and I still, those names still, right. like, I remember, oh, I remember where I was when that happened. I remember where I was when that happened. I wasn't even living in Israel, right. but uh, but there you were. So that was your year in Israel experience and uh, all sorts of uh, beautiful and positive moments as well, but uh, but all those challenging moments. And then you came, came here to L.A.? To LA? Yeah. yeah. And why didn't you go straight to the New York campus? Because you'd think that you'd want to go and... So be back home. Speaking of Rabbi David Saperstein, so when I got into HUC, you know, we were all very excited. And then I got this letter and I, he helped me. We wrote this long letter because at that point you got to request your campus. Right. Um, but you didn't, you weren't guaranteed placement. And I had written this very long letter about the New York campus and why it was so important and my family and this and that. And I get this letter that's like, you are going to Los Angeles. And I remember like marching into Rabbi Saperstein's office, which you didn't really do, by the way. Um, you marched in. Oh, yeah. And I was oh, like, Oh, I've seen you do that. I was like, What is this? And I will never forget. He sort of looked at it and looked at me and he goes, Well, you know, it's, it'll be great. You'll get to study with Rabbi Ellenson. You'll get to study with Rabbi Levy of Blessed Memory. And then I think two days later or three days later, they announced that Rabbi Ellenson, who is a, a, a mentor and a friend and all of those things, was moving to New York. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, and I remember having... You're still Richard. You still have Exactly. Richard. Yeah. And, and I had a conversation with Rabbi Pankin, also of blessed memory. That is very sad to yeah. realize how many. Um, and he sort of said to me, look, I get it. Um, he grew up in New York also. We had lots of overlapping connections. He went to my high school. Um, he said, you know, you'll go to Jerusalem and if like, and you can, you can apply to transfer. Um, and, and if you don't transfer, if you go to LA and you hate it, we'll bring you home, you know, and, and, you know, I went to Jerusalem 
again, still really thinking I'd end up in New York, but the people I ended up close with were all going to LA. And I said, you know what? I'll, I'll give it a try. And look at and how look well at me it now. worked out. Yeah. Uh, and you met Ben. In Los Angeles. Because of that. Mm-hmm, so exactly. we wouldn't have the wonderful Ben Cutter in our lives. Well, well some you of might. us would because you, I you knew, would, I, I kind of knew him, but certainly not Orly and yeah, Jacob no. Cutter. Um, so all of those things are blessings that came from that. What was your rabbinic thesis about? Was it Talmud rabbinic? It was. Something? So we, I don't know if this still, it's all these things, like does it still exist? We had the option of writing a traditional rabbinic thesis or doing what they called a te- text immersion. Uh, and so I studied with then doctor, now Rabbi Dr. Dvor Weisberg, and I studied, I want to say, three chapters of Kitzubot. Um, and I looked at the the way women that shift between from sort of daughter to daughter-in-law and daughter to wife. Huh. Um, Keeping up my trend of studying women in religion. Yeah, but you weren't a, a women's studies major. No, but my, my thesis in undergraduate right. also was women in religion. Right. So I, I like to stay on brand. No, it's good. You got to, and it's a really important, um, it's an important thing to study and an important thing to teach about. And uh, and so you were ordained, and then you decided to go back to New York. Yes. So you're ordained in Los Angeles. I was ordained in Los Angeles. And then you go and, and work. Right, you and just I you, you you switch sides of I the said, island. Yeah, I switch sides of Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're at Rodif, and then um, all sorts of wonderful things brought you back to the West Coast. How do you think that West Coast Judaism is different from East Coast Judaism? Because you had that experience both growing up and then you, you know, then you left, you had a, a little bit of a taste at the Midwest, but you were at college, it's yeah. different, you know, but, but then you really, you've served a community on the Upper West Side of Manhattan for more than a decade and, and now you're six years, seven years? Five years. Just starting my sixth. Starting today. your sixth. Okay. Today, July today. 1st, is the beginning of your sixth year of your tenure here. V'chein uh, yirbu. May it only increase. But uh, yeah, how would you characterize some of those differences? I, you know, the thing that I think about a lot um, is is actually Rabbi Zeldin, also of blessed memory, right? I, I On the East Coast, it is almost unfathomable to know, you know, to to be able to be in actual physical conversation with the founding rabbi of any community. Right. Um, you know, they're uh, all, they're all dead. Like long, and not just like long dead. Right. right? You know, when right. I left Rota Sholem, we had just celebrated 175 years right. and there's something remarkable and really beautiful and profound about that. And, you know, there I, are some homes in Los Angeles that are 75. I know years old. I, my in-laws that's, used to live in one. That's pretty right. big deal. But right. like, so t- to me and, and my husband grew up just down the street from us at Leo Beck where they were friendly with the founding rabbi. That is so anathema to the East Coast experience or at least my East Coast experience that, you know, I and I've always joked that I think the sort of the cowboy Western spirit still does animate West Coast Judaism. Sure. I think there is more of a willingness to experiment. Um, and I think, you know, just a little bit more freedom because you, you, you know, every synagogue has its traditions, but they're not entrenched for 180 years, right? Um, you know, they might be entrenched for 40 years or maybe they're entrenched for five years. And so I think, um, and I remember that in rabbinic school, but, but I've noticed it here too, yeah. that I do think, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I will also name one of the things that I, I love, and I think it also speaks to that need to 
to reimagine more is also the, the diversity of the community in Los Angeles that obviously there's a diverse community in New York, but at least on the surface, it is a much more monolithic community. And even on the surface here in Los Angeles, it is very clear that that's not the case. Yeah. Well, in the sense that, and this is certainly not true of every Angelino, certainly not today as, as the community continues to, to flourish and thrive and age, but many, many people are not from here. Yep. And, uh, and while you do have that in New York, you know, I'm sure you had plenty of folks at Rodif who were, you know, third and fourth generation yes. yep. and the same at, um, you know, at Shari Tefila and at Stephen Wise, we're starting to see in our parenting center and right. our, you know, alumni. And so you're starting to get that, which is beautiful. And we always love that when people say like, I was here for mommy and me, and now you know, I'm dropping off my own kid here, but it's still somewhat new, new. you know? Yeah. And yeah, you're right. When the, when the founder and we both had the opportunity to spend, you know, time with Rabbi Zeldin and over the years, I got to visit him a bunch of times down in the desert. But obviously, you know, everything he did at the beginning and everything they did at the beginning was new. And so you have this built-in kind of openness. And I think one of the tricks and one, one of our core values at Wise is creativity. I think one of the tricks is how do you honor tradition and honor what's been done and also honor that, yeah, but part of our tradition is to do new things. Right. <laughs> part right. of our tradition is to is to reinvent ourselves and to be open to new things and to say, okay, we don't have to do it that way because, you know, at our grandparents' shul, you know, they in Boyle Heights, right. they did it that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Instead, we can say, no, no, we, we are right. consciously going to forge a new path and see how it goes. And that openness to um, trying and failing too. I think innovators um, are... I think that's a characteristic of an innovator. They, 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 their risk tolerance is very high. Very high. Because like it might not work, that, right. you know. Um, and but if can you build a culture where there's high risk tolerance, not stupid high risk right. tolerance, where we're just doing dumb stuff. But yeah, let's try new things. And what's the worst thing that would happen is like maybe it wouldn't work. Right. Okay, then we'll try something else. So that's something that I, I certainly characterizes this place, but I think does characterize West Coast Judaism more. The other thing, you know, is that this is Hollywood. And so yeah. this is a place where we tell new stories and we retell stories and we remix stories. So, okay, but now we're doing the remake of A Star is Born. <laughs> right, exactly. and, but it, but yeah. it's a new movie and we're going to find a new way to tell that. And it's and, and no one rolls their eyes and says, oh, how could you go back? Of course we're going to go back to that and retell that story uh, and find a new angle on it. So in that sense, I think... The Judaism that that kind of culture can animate is a Judaism that says, yeah, we've got this story to tell. It's the Purim story. Let's come up with a new way of telling that. It's the Hanukkah story. Let's come up with a new way of telling that. Um, and so I, I I love that. And I guess the other thing that I've noticed here, and I'd, I'd like your perspective, because I worked in New York at a variety of different places, but only as an intern. I was never, you know, really rooted in that place. But my sense, and I also wasn't ordained a rabbi yet, but my sense was that the rabbis on the West Coast, particularly in L.A., play together really nicely across okay. denominations, and there's a little less of that kind of turfiness. Is it, was that your experience? It was. Yeah. I mean, I remember that actually when I was in rabbinic school, I actually worked for the board of rabbis. That was my internship for a year. And, and it was always just so nice and collegial. Um, here, here. in LA. Right, right. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I mean, I think some of it, and it's funny, right? Cause the distances here are so much more. Um, but again, I wonder if some of that is that sort of pioneering spirit of, 
Um, you know, we're not going to compete over it in the same way. Right. I've never, I've just never had that experience. And I know that I know colleagues who have in other places where it's like, I wouldn't set foot in the reform synagogue, you know, an Orthodox rabbi saying, I wouldn't set foot in that synagogue because, you know, it would sort of be telling everybody that I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm affirming your approach or anything yeah. like that. I just hear a lot less of that. I've yeah, heard. I do. I, I mean, I was spoiled, I think, because of... the Upper West Side, I mean, I don't know what they did on the East Side, um, but the Upper West Side actually did have a really nice right. sort of collegial. We did some shared stuff with the Jewish Center, which is a large modern Orthodox community or Orthodox community. And, you know, we did some joint communal stuff, but. So I can't not ask about this, given the moment that we are in right now today is July 1st, 2022. And a week ago today, uh, the Supreme Court issued its uh, Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. And I think for, um, I'll just speak personally, just for me, as I've been reading about it, you know, day by day, the enormity of what has transpired, even though we knew this was happening because the the um, decision had been leaked. And so it, it's not that we weren't prepared for this, but then just the actual consequences. Like today I was talking to Rabbi Noble and he was telling me about the sermon that he's going to be delivering tonight and about um, uh, a woman who tweeted that um, she, <clears throat> she was recently diagnosed with cancer. She's in a state where a trigger law has already gone into effect mm-hmm. and uh, she's going to have to uh, basically beg the board uh, you know, like the, a medical board to allow her to have the cancer treatment because the cancer treatment right. might very well damage the fetus. And, you know, and, and eight days ago, that would not have been the case. Right. So when we think about, you know, how we apply our Jewish tradition and Jewish texts and Jewish wisdom to moments like this, and then we also think about, you know, sort of the added layer as reformed Jews who... Um, believe deeply in a principle of um, equality, also in personal autonomy, um, the fundamental kavod, the fundamental dignity that every human being has, including women. Um, You know, we put all those things together and it's like, boy, how are we going to respond? Especially knowing that Jewish tradition um, is, is, uh, is very much not just open to reproductive rights that, that women should be able to exercise on their own, but in some cases, um, you know, goes so far as to say this is a, a requirement to abort a fetus if, you know, if, if the woman's life is in danger or if her emotional well-being is threatened. You know, so how are you, um, you've been writing about this and, and helping our congregation, but I guess more personally, you know, what are you, what are you doing to navigate this time as a rabbi, as a mom, as a daughter, as a woman? I mean, there's a lot of rage. I mean, there's a lot of rage. And I think, you know, part of it, I was just having this conversation is, is exactly the question of what do I as a, you know, fairly privileged, you know, white skinned woman in a state who's done bearing children, <laughs> no surprise, right? In a state where my actual rights are not at risk. Like, what is it but that I meant to do? But you have a daughter who I might do have a daughter, right? Someday who, wanna, right, who might right. go to college somewhere. Yeah, it's, right. you know, I think those are the things that feel really real. Um, you know, I think the thing that I have felt the most in the last week, and, you know, look, my whole life, my mom brought me to my first pro-choice rally when I was 11. Um, like, this is something that has felt sort of baked into my my DNA from my mom um, and my dad, actually, when, when he passed away. 
um, we asked for donations in his memory to, among other places, Planned Parenthood, because this is something he believed in so deeply. Um, you know, I think particularly as a rabbi and particularly as, as a woman rabbi, you know, I have been very outspoken uh, for two reasons. Um, the first is that I want families in my community or families who who are looking for Jewish voice on this to, to know they can come to me, right? And they can bring their story um, and their need. I think, you know, I, I think I shared with you, I, I'm, as you know, I'm active on social media. Um, and, you know, I had been after, after the, after the decision was leaked and also in this past week have been, I would say fairly clear on where I stand and, and had a couple of people who reached out to me either to share their story or to share their pain, um, and their anxiety around it. And I think that there is something, it's not, I, I got to read Rabbi Noble's sermon for tonight and I think it is so powerful and I'm so glad to hear male allies like you, like right, standing up. But I think there is something in in the female rabbinic voice um, that opens up for some of those conversations. Um, and and right now, I think because it is, it's pe- it's people's lives. Right? This isn't. Um, I had a conversation with. Someone. It's also it's also so immediate too. Like today, the Supreme Court's decision about how the executive branch can regulate right. industry. You know, when you think about global warming, I look at a decision like that, and it horrifies me. But it's not immediate. Right. It's, it's not something that tomorrow. That, something. Right. It's something right. that's already painful and problematic and worrisome. But. But still, even though we're, of course, experiencing the effects of climate change now, but the kinds of effects that are going to be truly horrifying, you know, are, are a, little, a little ways off. Not a long ways off, but a little ways off. But this decision, the, the Dobbs decision, you realize that in, in a second, second, in an instant, and I it think changed the difference for so with, many people. You know, the Dobbs decision versus the EPA is also like, the Dobbs decision, like, that's in my house. That's in my body. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's not, I, I was having this conversation with someone who's like, do you want to read this intellectual argument about Griswold, which they're going to come for, you know? And I was like, no, I, I'm not interested in the intellectual argument right now because, right. It, especially by someone whose, whose body isn't on the line around this. So, you know, that's part of it. And, and, the, and then the other part is that I, it, it, among the things that enrages me, I've been enraged for men, probably since that first pro-choice rally that I went to. I've been enraged that that somehow the language around life um, has was ceded to to religious voices that are not mine, um, and and this idea that religion I'm putting that in quotes right only values a certain kind of life always felt so anathema to everything I knew about my faith, um, and so I also think. You know, and I think there's so many people out there, I, I see it, who are so damaged and hurt by faith um, of all sorts, right? And particularly extremist faith that that for me to be out there as a voice that says, wait a minute, there is a different path and there's different language and there's faith that has different values. Um, and, and right, it's not the fault of faith. Right. Um, it might be the fault of bad actors and the way they're using their faith, but like don't don't tar us all you know, with the same religious brush. And, right. and so the idea that I could have a religious voice that could be heard, you know, by, by even by one person who says, huh, there's it's a so religious important. voice that's saying something different. It's so important. And it's, you, you know, we've been, we'll have to make sure that uh, if you're listening and you want to go hear Rabbi Noble's sermon, which she hasn't delivered yet, but we've both read, <laughs> you can do that. But one of the points he makes, which is so important for all of us to remember, is that, you know, we, we talk about 
America as uh, as a place that has been often animated by these Judeo-Christian values. It's like, well, the Jewish values when it comes to abortion, um, you know, at at the very least, there's an absolute, um, absolute, not just uh, permission but obligation to abort a fetus if the mother's life is in danger. Even, uh, actually, there are halakhic examples, even if it's against her will. Like if she says, right. no, 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 I'd rather risk my own life right. to save the baby, the you know medical professionals can say, no, we're sorry. We can't allow that to happen because in some ways that would be allowing, uh, in the eyes of the tradition, that the, the fetus is a rodef, um, a pursuer who's actually, you know, obviously not consciously, but is actually killing its mother. I mean, you know, like that is part of our faith tradition. And I was just studying with uh, our Talmud class, uh, Exodus 21, which has the the proof text right. for abortion that makes it clear that, um, that the unborn child is not a person yet, uh, has status, but not the status right. of a person. And that's part of our faith. That's part of our religious tradition. And how come that uh, even though that's part of the First Amendment, um, how come that that doesn't have any standing? Right. It is it is uh, it is infuriating, and and as you say, when you add the added layer of like actually having a uterus, actually being able to carry a child, or or know what it'd be like to have an ectopic pregnancy that would kill you if you didn't mm-hmm. abort that Been there, fetus, done that, yeah. yeah, like you would you would have died, right. And yeah, and, and you know, and I think, and you and I were talking about this, and, and it's, I discussed it with Rob. I know, but right, th- this, you know, I, the, I mean, I know we're trying to move, I'm constantly trying to move away from it, but I grew up with the language of, you know, you're pro choice or you're pro life. And and mm. I always come back, and I think especially because of, of Jewish teaching, right, that says, like, you know, life doesn't start until you take your first breath. Like, that is life. And this idea of, like, but whose life? Right. Right? That And, and you know, you are a parent. I am a parent. Right? I have sat there. I have waited for that. Right? You've had that moment of, like, are they going to find, you know. But even in those moments, right? And, uh, you know, I had lots of struggles to become a parent. And even in those moments, I knew, like, this is only a potential. Like, I am the actualized human in this scenario. Right. Um, and, yes, there is this potential that I could be growing another actualized human, and that's amazing, and that is miraculous, and that is sacred, but it's still only potential. Right. Um, and and I just I, I struggle I struggle with all of that language of like, but but <laughs> like. Right. So what what what's the, you know, it's hard to then after all that emotion that you express to then say, okay, so now pastor me, you know, rabbi me, but you are the guest on the <laughs> podcast. So like rabbi us, um, how do we deal with the rage, you know, and how do we deal with the uh, appropriate, um, yeah, the, apo- the appropriate outrage that uh, not only is this, is this happening, that, that reproductive rights are being um, not just... I mean, they're not under attack. They've, they've, they, 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 they're gone. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so not only to, to witness that, um, but, you know, to see what we thought was sort of vectored, like there's an arrow and we're going to get more and more rights and more and more dignity. Mm. And then you wonder, okay, so this happened. Now what about same-sex marriage? What about same-sex adoption? What about contraception? Okay. All those other liberties and rights that uh, that we shouldn't take for granted, but that we have taken for granted. What do we do with all that anger? So last week I taught, we had this beautiful gathering, um, 
put together by a number of female rabbis uh, and Ellison Lee. Um, and I taught using the frame of our Book of Lamentations, right? That, that you know, we have this one day in our tradition set aside to like put on our sackcloth and ashes and like sit in this pain. Um, and, and I said, I, you know, sometimes I imagine what if we read Eicha, the, the Book of Lamentations, not only with weeping, but with like, ra- I think there's rage in that book. Um, and I think there's rage in that experience. And and I remember a teaching at the Hartman Institute. We were there, maybe it was right before Tisha B'Av. I think it was Rosh Chodesh Av, at the beginning of the month of Av. And we were studying some texts about it. And the the teaching was basically that the, the reason Tisha B'Av exists is to give us a container for all of that, right? And to remind us, like, you actually can't sit in that forever, um, you know? And so I, one of the things I've sort of been been thinking about so there's a couple of things right is and one and it sounds so trite um but I have really been trying to sort of like lean into those moments of joy and say like oh right I can I can hold both um and and also like the lessons of Tisha B'Av is that you have to emerge from it right you you actually don't get to sit in the sackcloth and ashes forever and while it might not be our theology around the rebuilding of Jerusalem right this idea that you sort of get up and rebuild and so you know I'm trying to figure out like exactly and I think all of us can ask that question of what do the people who are at the moment most affected um which is largely black and brown women in you know the south right what do they need um, and how, how can I be a part of, of getting there? And, and I've talked a lot with a lot of friends and I think it goes back to the sort of like, why does Dobbs hit differently than the EPA is also like, I can't change, like, I'm not going to change a corporation. Right. But, but I think we do have the power to affect one person here and one person there. And for now that feels like it has to be enough. And it feels like such a small moment and also feels like the only thing we can do. Well, thank you. There's, I think you're right, trying to find ways to hold on to joy um, and remind ourselves that, yeah, we, we can't effectively live our lives and navigate this world if we are in that constantly. But we shouldn't move on from it too quickly either, because that rage can inspire us to action and to, and to actually, you know, do something to try to change the... Um, to change that reality. And I'm also, I think about, you know, those forces that have worked for decades to overturn Roe v. Wade. um, Well, there is persistence and patience and energy and commitment and dedication. And those of us who feel like this decision needs to be overturned again someday, or a legislative solution needs to be found, because, you know, the, there are people who can guide us in that regard in terms of what what does the law allow you know what what can we do um we have to we have to do that work and stay focused and not give up because if if we uh, if we leave the rage too quickly we might not be able to make those changes yeah. so we talk about in uh in our work a nechemta some some um comforting words, especially when we deal with so much of what you shared was uplifting and comforting and beautiful. Um, but, but we just spoke about something that was, um, none of those things. Uh, what's, uh, what's something beyond just those moments of joy? What's something that, uh, you found especially hopeful, maybe just in this past year, you know, to get to zoom out from this last week, but in this past year, slowly we've been 
returning to some type of normalcy. Um, we got, I referenced earlier, we got to be at the song session for Camp Wise today and to see those kids and also just to see the age groups mixing, which again, you know, like a year ago that wasn't happening um, at camp. We had to keep them segregated um, to see because our campuses, uh, we have so many outdoor spaces to see our kids playing and having fun, not having to wear masks because um, they can be outside and, 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 and do so safely. What are some of the other things you've, you've, uh, found hopeful in recent time? I mean, look, I, I think what you said about, you know, those who, the forces that might be seeking opposite visions of what I have, right? I think I have found hope in in faith in the sense of like, Judaism's pretty good at playing the long game, right? You know, that, that our past is not one of like constant success, um, but, but like, all of the notions, right? All of the notions of God's, you know, unfulfilled, un, as yet unfulfilled promises and this sort of unrequited longing for a world that we're not yet in. Um, and I think I find real comfort in that, in the sense that, like, you know, nevertheless, like, right? we have, we say it in Hatzikva, that we haven't lost the hope. Um, and that, like, each and every Shabbat, each and every holiday, we still, and, and I think each and every day, right, still dream of that world that still could be. And so I, I think about, like, all right, we are now, if we weren't before, which unfortunately I think myself included, a lot of us were not. Um, if we weren't in the long game now, then I think we are now. And, and, and it gives me hope to know like, yeah, I come from a tradition that gets the long game. That's so beautiful. Rabbi Sari Laufer, thank you so much thank for you. your friendship, for your Torah, for your neshama, and for sharing a little bit of your story with us. And professionally, as your colleague here at Stephen Wise Temple, thank you so much for um, your work in engaging people and teaching people and uh, connecting our families and our kids and our community to our beautiful tradition in ways that are guided by your passion and your sense of justice and, and your hopeful, optimistic desire to make our world the world that it ought to be. Thank you. Well, that's our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to Rabbi Sari Laufer for making time for me. Thanks to the whole team who put Search for Meaning together, our producer, Ryan Gorsi, our editor, Raz Husseini. Our theme song was composed by maestro David Cates and myself and features a vocal from Josh Goldberg. Thank you for tuning in, and hey, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes, and share it with a friend. Who knows, they might like the show as well. Hey, stay safe, stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay tuned.